Welcome to the Success in South Carolina podcast, where we will be hearing the untold stories of success from some of the top achievers in our home state of South Carolina. These neighbors of ours will also share their time-tested personal philosophies and solutions to inspire us, educate us, and help us find peace, joy, and love, along with a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And I'm your host, Jonathan Peoples. Our guest today lives in Greenville, South Carolina. He is the Chief Executive Officer for Cargo, a business strategy and marketing consultancy that helps big brands more effectively market and sell to small to medium businesses. He has served in executive leadership roles for several high impact, fast growth organizations. So he knows success intimately. He has the unique ability to develop and deploy innovative approaches to an organization's most pressing challenges. In addition to that, he knows South Carolina. In fact, he probably knows everybody in South Carolina. (laughs) And if for some reason you don't know him, then you absolutely need to connect with him. He is the best of the best in leaders, teachers, salesmen, mentors, and friends. Welcome to the show, my great friend, Toby Stansel. Hey, Toby. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to see you again. Good to see you too, man. Toby, I've known you for a long time. I'm not sure. Are you native to South Carolina? No, I'm not. My family was. Listen, my my family was from Oak County County. My mom and dad both grew up in the really small town of, of Westminster. This is kind of humorous. You, you know, you might as well make these things entertaining. My grandfather was a old Southern Baptist preacher. He preached and and everybody knew him. The town only had about 2,000 residents, and his church had about 1,000 members. About half the town went to his church. Back then, being, you know, the church kind of being the social and religious gathering place of the town, I mean, he was important to all the elections. Strom Thurmond appointed him a colonel. When Strom Thurmond was the governor of South Carolina, he kind of helped get the, get the vote out. But my dad went to Clemson. Uh, he went straight through in three years. And I think he, I think this is true. This may be, he, he majored in mechanical engineering and he graduated third in his class. And he's always bragging. He's 92 now. His 92nd birthday was a week ago today. It was February 16th. He said he had 10 job interviews and nine job offers. And uh, he went to work for the Tonic Energy Commission in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, at what's called the K-25 plant. Three plants there, uh, X-10, Y-12, and K-25. And during the war, that was the Manhattan Project. And that's where the uranium was refined. U-235 and U-238 uranium was separated. And that was what was used as the fuel in one of the two atomic bombs used to end World War II. Now, he was there after the war, 1952. But that's how I ended up being born in Tennessee. I was born in Oak Ridge. Lived in Oak Ridge till I was about eight. Probably the smartest people in America were in Oak Ridge really because of that project that was there. I had a very unique school system. You had to take French starting in the third grade. Wow. Uh, you know, all your, all the uh, people that were there were just scientists and engineers and researchers. And so just kind of really unique sort of demographic for Oak Ridge. And then when I was eight, of course, as the Cold War began to kind of persist, my dad wanted to get out of the atomic energy business. He got back in, the, he got in the textile business and, but he didn't come to the Carolinas, which was typical. He went to Memphis, Tennessee. So I, hmm. I grew up in Memphis till I was in the ninth grade. 
and then we moved back to Greenwood, South Carolina for a year, and then to Clemson for a year. I, went, I was in Clemson during my 10th grade year, and that's where I met Lindsey Graham. Lindsey was our 10th grade class president, so I've known Lindsey for 53 years. Uh, you know, not well. I don't see him a lot these days, but uh, and then I went I went, we, I finished high school outside of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And, but Clemson just proved when I lived there just for 10 months was one of the friendliest places that I, I mean, even though we lived there a short period of time, I guess maybe because of the nature of the school was there, you had transient professors, everybody kind of took in everybody else, got a lot of new students at Daniel High School every year. I just thought, man, what a great place to live. It's on Lake Hartwell, you can water ski and fish and swim, Yeah. you know? And uh, so even though I ended up with an academic scholarship to the University of North Carolina, I actually turned it, I declined it to come back and go to Clemson. And that's really what brought me back to South Carolina. And then through various professional appointments and engagements, I really went around the world. I went to Asheville and Los Angeles and Austin and lived in Europe for a number of years, worked in Asia. But I just kept coming back here. Once I went to Clemson, this just kind of became, you know, and then I, I went to Raleigh for my first job and then came back to Greenville in 1978 or 79. And that just kind of came my home base. And every time I'd venture off, I'd move somewhere. I might stay three or four or five years, but we'd come back here. And so finally, when we came back here 19 years ago in 2004, then, you know, then we kind of ended up, this was kind of the final move. And even though I'm kind of a, an adventurer at heart, I, you know, even at my age, I'd probably start another business if somebody challenged me. But now I got five grandchildren, so I'm a prisoner of war. I can't go anywhere. They all around here. They've got me. They've got me held captive. So, I, you know, my feet are pretty well nailed to nailed to the turf. I'm not. I'm not going to go anywhere. So this is where I've spent most of my life, and certainly from a commercial and civic engagement, commercial. What I call the three C's: commercial, civic, and culture. It's where I've invested most of my time, energy, effort, money, and you know. So this is home to me. How in the world, Toby, and you just name dropped two or three people in there that you just, yeah, yeah, well, I grew up with this guy. This, How in the world do you know so many people? How do you, and, and how do you even remember them all? It seems like you've got a limitless Rolodex in your head. Well, and listen, I'm going to say this, and i say this, I hate, ego, I hate ego, I hate arrogance, I hate anybody that's braggadocious, but, uh, you know, my mom, my, my dad was really smart and, you know, my mom noticed when I was about three years old, I could tell her every kind of car that was coming down the road by the type of headlights it had. I, I learned to read when I was three. And so, you know, she took me to the doctor. She said, I believe there's something wrong with him. And uh, what we learned was there's kind of three today that I don't know the scientific terms, kind of three components of your brain. There's the part that captures information, the part that maintains and restores it. And then the part that retrieves it, it's kind of like a disk drive. And so the doctor told my mom, he said, look, said, I can't explain this. This is very different than a photographic memory. But unless you're, so they didn't have Alzheimer's back then. It wasn't such a term. Called it hardening of the arteries. Unless your son kind of gets dementia or hardening of the arteries, he's going to be able to recall the verbal use at 97% of everything he sees. Wow. And that has really served me well in just kind of just – you don't even have, I, don't, I really, I'm fortunate. I don't even have to kind of think about what's going on around me. There'd be multiple conversations, multiple people. And I, it just kind of all gets in there. I don't know how, John, I wish I could give you next. So you were, so basically what you're telling me is you're one of those superheroes they've got in the mute in the, uh, in the movies. I, th- I was hoping you had some kind of skill you could teach us, but, <laughs> I but I do know that I do know this, Toby, you said you can car tell a car from its headlights. 
And I'll tell you one thing I know at nighttime with a car, if I see a car's headlights coming down the road at nighttime, I can tell exactly which direction it's heading. Ah, that's pretty good. You're very <laughs> smarter than me. But listen, you asked a question that made real sense. It's about how do you get to know so many people? I'm going to tell you what it is. It's not, con- it's, you don't concentrate on yourself. Hmm. I think people can tell in five minutes. You know, I've, I've told people the same thing. And, and listen, I'm not perfect either. We're all hypocrites to a degree. We all say we believe things and we do things and then we fail or we fall or we fumble. Sure. We've all got liabilities. Mm. But people can tell in five minutes whether it's all about you or it's really about them. Mm. And I think if you really have a natural intellectual curiosity, you're interested in what people do. You're not just interested in kind of the things that appeal to you, what's in your natural, professional, personal DNA and talent pool. But you have you just have a genuine interest in kind of seeing people do well around you. And I've always said my signature question is, what can I do? What can I do to help you? And people ask that and then somebody tells them something and then they quickly run for the, you know, they run for the shade because they're not going to do it. And my wife has been unbelievable. I, I just said, look, if, if you ask that question and somebody says, well, let me tell you what you can do to help me. Mm-hmm. And you can and you don't do it. then that really is the definition of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And so even though it takes a lot of time and you, you got to give up some of the things you might want to do for yourself, I think it's all about making other people's lives better. Jackie Robinson, who was the first African-American professional baseball player, and I'm paraphrasing this, but his tombstone says something like, the value of life uh, is only important to the degree of impact it has on others' lives. That's what his epitaph says. Hmm. And we all think we're going to be most content, Jonathan, when we've got the right amount of money in the bank, a 401k slush, we've got the right address, we got drive the right car. And the truth is that's not true. Is that beyond a certain point, I found that money causes more problems than it solves, Hmm. creates arrogance, creates independence, uh, makes you unapproachable. And what I found is that what really makes you content is you kind of invest in yourselves in causes that are bigger than yourself and other people. And if you benefit as a byproduct of that, that's great, but that's not the motivation for why you're doing it. You really just like to see people close that gap between performance and potential and whatever you can do to help them do that. then that's what you do. Now, you know, you got to be real. It can't be some sort of false humility or you're doing that to self build a name for yourself. It's just, right. you got to have a genuine interest in other people and see right. them do well. And it's not about success as much as that is about two things. It's about excellence and it's about significance. Hmm. I wrote a little thing years ago, said 13 elements of for success and significance in business and in life. It's just 13 things, but it's all the things that I think make person have a, you know, so they don't have to be externally validated. They're confident that these are the skills and talents and capabilities that I've been blessed with. And here's how I put them to the best, highest and best use. And I may not get any accolades at all on, on, on this earth, but that's fine. I'm doing what I've been called. People talk about being driven. I talk about being called. I don't want to be driven. I want to be called to do something that's really in line with who I am and what I believe, what my talents and capabilities and skills are. Well, Toby, you've already uh, given us a head start here. I, I One of my goals with talking to you, you've got so much wisdom. I know that uh, I consider you a friend and a mentor, but every time I have a conversation with you, I walk away with something more. You talk about genuine curiosity, wanting people to succeed. So I want to share your story so much. My goal today is really just to ask you some provocative questions and then get the heck out of the way because you have got, I'm going to let the wisdom flow. Uh, So so 
you are a master at teaching and speaking and sales and leadership. How have you developed these skills throughout your career? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And most people just say, oh, I don't know. I just kind of figured it out. But I didn't just figure it out. I'm going to tell you, I, I'm writing, I've written a book. I resisted writing a book for years. And the reason is, again, I'm just getting, I don't like self-promotion. I don't need any notoriety. And, but it's not know. about you. It's about, it's about the impact you can make because your book impacts so said, many other people. You got, I said, I'll do this. If it shortens the maturation path for somebody to become an authentic leader, and it helps the company I'm with at the time, you know, that's fine. But this didn't just happen uh, by happenstance or by chance. I'm going to tell you, well, first of all, I had the good fortune in, when I was early in my career to be with IBM. When IBM had a very structured training program, they had very high ideals about how they, <clears throat> their values and principles in their business and how they operated. You could get fired for three things in IBM. If I see if I can remember. Number one is if you ever disparaged the competition, if you said anything negative about a competition, rather than saying po things positive about IBM, you lost your job. Uh, if you ever used IBM size as a reason for a prospect to do business with you, say, well, you ought to do business with us over Burroughs because we're bigger and less risky. You get fired mm. for that. And if you ever unhooked, and unhooked means – the company that you were calling on had already placed an order with a competitive company for the service or solution you were selling. You couldn't convince them to retract that purchase order. And if you did that, you'd lose your job. You also couldn't discount prices. The price was the price. That's what you mm -hmm. sold it for. And so that basically it puts you on a, in, in almost a kind of a tougher playing field, but you had to learn. I, I always say the, my number one rule in business is be professional. It taught you how to be professional. And I had some customers. I was a young IBM rep. I know you can't talk about age in business these days. I, let's just say I was very inexperienced. But I had some customers that had been used to much more experienced IBM account execs than me. And I'm going to tell you something. They put me through the ringer. The prologue in the book, and the title of the book is The Winding Road to Excellence, because it's not a straight shot. You go through a lot of detours. And the subtitle is Leadership Lessons Learned from Life's Potholes. And when I got engaged with Forbes, a lot of, you know, they said, well, we're kind of write your formula recipe for success. And I said, you know, I said, everybody's got a how-to book, how to say be the greatest salesperson, how to be the greatest CEO. I said, the truth is nobody's figured out life or business exactly. And it changes so fast. I may have the optimum solution today and it's going to be bankrupt tomorrow. So I will not do that. But what I will do is tell you some of the hard lessons and mistakes and failures and errors that I made along the way and the lessons that I learned that meet the test of these three things of being universal, timeless, and objective. Hmm. Universal, that lesson always apply. You don't have to say, well, does this apply in this situation? It's not situational. It's always applicable. It'll work wherever you find yourself. Timeless, it worked yesterday, it'll work today, it'll work tomorrow. Hmm. And objective, it doesn't favor you because you're wearing a cap and I'm not. It doesn't disfavor me because I'm white and you're purple. It, that, all, it levels the playing field. So mm -hmm. I began to recognize, look for those lessons learned that are, meet the test of being universal, timeless, objective, because you can share with people and they can instantly put them to use in the very next situation that they encounter. And so I kind of remembered those things kind of uh, anecdotally or informally kept a mental catalog of them. But when I got my first smartphone in 2002, I'll never forget this. It's a, it was a Palm Trio 300 and it was silver. <laughs> and it, it was a flip phone. 
Yeah. And it had a tactile keyboard. And so, but it had a defect and you'd open it about that. The reason I think the reason they called it the Palm Trio 300 is about every 300th time you'd open it up, the spring would break and the top would go shooting across the room. And if there's anybody within 50 feet and it hit them, it'd probably decapitate. <laughs> and, uh, but I started typing in the lessons I learned, you know, like sometimes here's one liners. Wow. Sometimes the things I want to do the least are the things I ought to do the most. Hmm. Don't defend it. Deal with it. Fix it or kill it. Just little one-liners of things that just, man, here's something I want to remember. This is going to be a principle that I, that use, I can use all the time. The biggest difference between people who do and people who don't is that people who do simply believe they can. Hmm. Well, I knew in the back of my mind that what I was putting in that phone was syncing to Outlook. That was kind of in the early days of integration between smartphones and but I wasn't paying attention to it. I knew my calendar was an outlook and my email was an outlook, my task went outlook. Well one day in about 2004, I saw the little notes button down there in Outlook. I thought I'd go look at it. And these notes I'd been taking on this phone, these one liners had account had amounted to eleven pages. Wow. Eleven pages of kind of one line principles and values. And I began to separate them, Jonathan, into that they were just one kind of big lump sum. I meant sales excellence, business excellence, communications excellence, spiritual excellence, uh, marketing excellence. And I began to kind of group them into buckets. And over the years, that grew to 17 pages. And those kind of became my values and principles based framework for how I made decisions. And people say, man, how, when's the last time you had to make a tough decision? I said, I really haven't. I said, and the reason is, is I can say, well, that's principle number nine, or that's mantra number four. That They all fit in that framework, just like I've got something called decision-making by the numbers. Three, three things to avoid, anything illegal, moral, and ethical. Two things to two things to behave like. Make sure we behave both at work and away from work in, in a way that reinforces our company values and our company culture. Mm. One decision-making model. Don't ever make a decision on your own that's so big that where you'd be wrong, it would damage these six things, six Cs. Our company, important customer, significant contract, your character, your confidence, or our culture. And so I began to write these things down, and they became – I made sure that they were so simple that I could transfer them to somebody else. Now, all of them aren't going to resonate with everybody. They may not resonate with anybody. Maybe people think that's rubbish, and I'm going to deep six that. But they're memorable, and they're easy to put into practice, and that really became the foundation for, first of all, the way I thought which translated into the way I behaved, which then translated into the way that I taught. And I could teach that to other people. And really, I, people ask me all the time, well, wh what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, you know, my title says CEO, but I'm a teacher. I'm a coach. I won't use the word mentor. And people say, why won't you use the word mentor? And I said, look, mentor implies a one-way relationship. One of us has all the answers and one of us not. And I don't, I don't care regardless of your age, anything. That's Unless you're in a relationship with a psychopath, it's a mutual shared learning experience. You were, mm. you were raised in, in by family different than mine. You saw things. You've seen things I haven't seen. You've been places I haven't been. You've learned lessons I don't know yet. You've had experiences I don't you, – you learn from each other. And when you have that kind of humility and respect, you can learn from anybody. Mm. Uh, and when that – I believe one of the greatest traits of a leader is they're humble because they're eager to learn from somebody else, not just tell somebody else what they know. And I think people recognize that as being, if it's genuine, if it's real, and you just, 
it draws people in. People want to be around people who genuinely care and appreciate what they're about. Yeah, I love your take there on mentorship because you're right. No one is perfect. Every every human, even if they're and none of us are better than any others. It's just we have no. different perspectives, different outlooks, different different thoughts and different beliefs because of things we've been taught. So if I can learn something from Toby, Toby can learn something from me. I can learn right. something from the from the garbage man. I can learn something from my dentist. I can learn something from anybody. It's true. I mean, my dad has a great saying. My dad taught, I tell you two of the sayings in the book, maybe more than that came from my dad. One was an option unconsidered was never really an option. So many times we look at something and say, oh, that didn't work. We tried it and we give it to Heisman. But the truth is something's changed in the environment, the time, the cut, and it may work. So don't just discount stuff. Go back and circle back and look at it. But he has a great one. He says, all of us have about the same number of liabilities. Some people's are just more visible than others. And that's true. You know, we're so quick to point out people's weaknesses and failures and foibles and just find the good in each other. We've all got challenges, you know, just find the good in each other. And that's also that also sticks to the point, Toby, that nowadays a lot of the traditional media and social media is built around things that are different, different and, and separating us and, and left or right or black right. or white versus, man, we've got, we've all got so much more in common than we do differences. Well, and, and listen, I, for years when I was more active in the chamber of commerce and, you know, vice chair of economic competitiveness for the chamber, and we'd have what's called these ILVs, inter-community leadership visits and the mayors and other large groups of you know, civic leaders would come to Greenville to kind of say, wow, how have y'all pulled this off? You know, how have y'all become such a vibrant mid-sized city in America? And invariably at one of the dinners, or one of the meetings, one of the leaders would ask me, what is it that makes Greenville different than it, it, any other place? What makes y'all so successful? I said, I'm going to tell you something. In Greenville, people will help you. Even if you're the competition, they'll still help you. Mm-hmm. Because we don't subscribe to the, the scarcity philosophy. We subscribe to the abundant world philosophy. There's plenty to go around. Let's focus on how we can complement each other, not how we compete with each other. And when you start from that position of guess what? You know, if we can help each other, I guarantee you one plus one equals 3.2, not two. When you work like that, when people start hearing quality things and, and compliments from businesses that look like they compete each other, their overall business goes up because it's got a multiplier effect to it. And it's just, you know, it's just uh, it's just a different model. Just again, find out, think about how we complement each other, not how we compete with each other. And I know that you live that firsthand because I saw that when uh, when I worked with you over at uh, over at Acumen that you would look at other companies that were quote unquote competitors and say, well, hey, listen, they may do something better than us. There were there's probably prospects in the market that come to us, and you know what? If if they're not a fit for us, we'll give them to them, and vice versa. And we want to create goodwill with all these companies because the more they succeed, the more we succeed. In fact, it's it's become my tagline. I stole this from Toby. South Car- success in South Carolina. Our tagline is: When you succeed, we all succeed. Right. Well, I always say if if you come to me and. Socrates, I think it was Socrates said prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And so many times today, we're so hard trying to sell what we have without really analyzing what it is, is challenging the customer or prospect or what's going to help them most. And I tell people right up front, look, well, I'm not going to talk about us. I'm not going to talk about me. This is our day to invest in you and to find out what you're trying to achieve. What's working? What's not? Where have you got, what are the biggest, three biggest challenges that you got to, 
you got to overcome and what are the three biggest opportunities that you'd like to capitalize upon? I said, if we get you into that discussion and we find out, wow, you do, here's some things you need, but it's not in our wheelhouse or our sweet spot uh, to help you. If I can't help you, I will connect you to somebody who can. And I think that's just an approach. Our jobs to be connectors is to connect the problem to the solution. And if that's, if I have it, that's great. But if I don't, I'm just as glad to help you some other way because I want you to trust me to the point that regardless of what kind of challenge you've got in your business, you call me because you know I'm going to give you give you guidance, prescriptive guidance that's going to help you get better whether I'm the solution or not. And I say the same thing to employees. I say, look, my role as a leader uh, in a company or corporation is to help you get to where you're supposed to be. And if that's with us, that's great. But if that's not with us, I'll help you get there. I work just as hard to help you get there as well. You know, so it's not about being selfish. It's not about holding things too close to the vest. It's not about, it's really about getting people in their ideal spot. And that changes throughout life. I had a pastor one time talked about the ages and stages of life. There are different roles, different spots, different places, that you're at at different stage, ages and stages of your life. And you got to be mentally and physically agile and realize that life's not static. And uh, I've seen so many people that they want life to be a certain way. And when it's not that way, they're miserable. And I learned from a gentleman died four or five years ago in Greenville that I worked for twice. His name was Hunter Park. And he shared some things with me. And he said, Toby, I'm going to tell you something. He said, if you can't have what you want, you better learn to want what you have or you'll be miserable. And I've never mm. forgotten that. If you can't have what you want, you better learn to want what you have or you'll be miserable. And none of us do that perfectly. We all sometimes find ourselves in situations or circumstances that are not ideal and that that uh, we're not exactly content with. But you need to develop kind of an overarching philosophy that, you know, there's a lot of things going to come at me today. It's not all I'm going to be playing. I'm going to have some interruptions, but I'm going to find, I'm going to find the good in it. And uh, sometimes there's something of a higher calling I'm supposed to do that's not in my to-do list, and it may interrupt my to-do list, but, it, but it's something important, and I need to pay attention to it. And, Toby, you mentioned potholes, obstacles, challenges, all these things you learn lessons from. Would you share some of those with us? Yeah, I mean, you know, the book is absolutely <clears throat> full of them. But uh, where can where can people find this book, by the way? Well, it, it doesn't come out to August eighth. The official release date's August eighth. It'll be everywhere. It'll be in the bookstores. There's an it'll be an audible book. I got a guy named Kevin Sage just recording it. It's a four. Well, you let me know when that's going to come out. We'll do some promos for you. We'll help okay. you out. Yeah, it's not till August. I, I can't wait for it. I thought it was. I thought this is something that was already printed. I'm I'm ready for it right now. Well, it's been a way longer. It's been a way longer project than I thought it would. But you know, you can't you can't rush this. But I tell you, one of the biggest one. You know, I was a when I was a IBM Key Account Exec in the early part of my career. I didn't even finish my IBM training because they had a a vacant territory that needed needed somebody to in Asheville that reported to Greenville that needed somebody to fill it. Well, nobody in Greenville wanted to move to Asheville. I was the bottom of the barrel. I was just you know, pretty inexperienced, wet behind the ears, new account, new IBM person. So they said, well, we ain't got anybody else to offer this job to. Do you want to go up there and be the the manufacturing account account rep? I said, absolutely. So we picked up our family. We had one child at the time and moved to Asheville. And so I didn't really know about calling on Fortune 500 accounts and really being a 
you know, what they expected, but I had an account named Arizona and had kind of a guy that was probably two or three years away from retirement that they were back then. It wasn't called director of IT or CIO. It's called MIS director. He's their management information center. Well, one day he called me in his office and he was holding this piece of paper. He said, Toby, how are you? I said, I'm all right, Mr. Holdridge. I said, what's that you got? He said, well, that's my IBM customer satisfaction survey. He said, it asked me to rate IBM's products and services and, you know, and system engineers and their salespeople. I thought you'd want to know how I rated you as a salesperson. And I think it was a scale one to five with five being you can walk on water and one being they need to take you out back and shoot you. And, and he had me rated literally a one almost everything. He said, listen, you're the worst IBM rep we've ever had. He said, we're, we're the biggest company in Western North Carolina. He said, obviously, you hadn't been trained. You don't know what's expected of a good IBM rep. I expect you, whether I've got a dime to spend or not, to know every IBM service bulletin and product bulletin. They came in three colors, blue, yellow, and pink. One was services, one was software, one was hardware. My take, my my right hand guy was his guy was a guy named Dick Eads on there. He said, I'm expecting you to be up here three days a week. Tell Dick Eads anything you think is relevant to our business, gonna help us run this business with more automation and more efficiency. Anyway, he lit me up. I'm not kidding for 30 minutes. This was about 1983 or 84. Mm. Yeah. 83. Well, this was before cell phones. And he said, Listen, get out of my office. At least when I send in this customer satisfaction survey. I don't know that you're going to get fired, but you won't have this territory. You won't have my account anymore. I'll get me a decent IBM rep. That's what he told me. I never, I never so, so scared in my life. I was 26, 27 years old. I, yeah. You could walk to the IBM office. They were on Pack Square, and the IBM office was in the old Clyde Savings and Loan building just down the hill toward Interstate 240. And I walked down there, went and I was called Susan. I said to my wife, I said, listen, I, you know, I'm going to lose my job. I said, the biggest customer up here, I only had nine clients that said, so that they just absolutely chewed me out. They hate me and and said, and they're right. I said, I just have not been doing, I didn't know this is what you had to do as an IBM rep. And they're going to send in a customer satisfaction survey. And Pete Deladon, who was my manager, I said, there's no way he's going to let me stay up here and, and take care of these accounts. Well, anyway, over the next few weeks, I busted my rear end <clears throat> to try to do anything I could think of to make sure that I absolutely covered those accounts with every kind of anything I could do. But about two months later was our review day in the branch, and I reported, I was in Asheville, but I reported to Greenland. And I went to the branch, and Pete called me, and I had nine accounts, Baxter, Travanol Laboratories, Eating Fluid Power, Eating Color. And I still remember DuPont Photo Products, uh, Sales Biltmore Bleacheries. A lot of those companies are not there anymore. But when they got to Axona, about in the middle of my review, and he went through the, you know, here's what they think of our products and disk products, and didn't have servers back then, computers. He got to the IBM rep portion. And he had all good, kind of all good marks. They're all fours and fives. And I said, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know how this happened, but somehow they got Axona's customer satisfaction survey mixed up with somebody else's. Mm. And I asked Pete, I said, Pete, are you sure that's Axona? I don't think that's Axona. And he said, no, I'm not. I said, Dick Holdridge signed it right here. So that's Axona's. <clears throat> so I went up. Again, I had to drive back up the mountain an hour. It was already late in the day. Went back home. I lived in Fairview, North Carolina, which was a suburb of Asheville. The next day, I went to my office, called Mr. Holdridge's secretary and said, listen, is Mr. Holdridge got an opening on his calendar today. I'd like to see him. And she said, yeah, he does about 3 o'clock. And I went up about 3 o'clock. I walked in. I said, Mr. Holdridge, I said, I had to come tell you this. I said, I don't know how this happened. I said, but somehow 
you know, there's a mix up and they got your customer satisfaction survey mixed up with somebody else because all the marks that for my performance as an IBM rep were a lot different than what you read me about eight weeks ago. And he said, nope. He said, that was mine. He said, Toby said, when you came in here that day, I had gotten that IBM survey in the mail that day. And he said, I decided I was going to give you, I was going to chew your rear end out and I was going to see what happened. He said, over the next six weeks, he said, you learn how to be a real IBM rep. And he said, I changed my marks and sent it in. He said, I had 45 days to send it in. And I tell everybody, there's three men in my life that were tough on me, Dick Holdridge, Hunter Park, and Frank Bellavia. Frank Bellavia was a marketing manager at IBM that made me do what I didn't have the self-discipline to make myself do because mm-hmm. I simply wasn't mature enough to do what I, what I ought to do. The real definition of maturity is can you act on intrinsic motivation alone? You don't have to have somebody make you do something. And I tell everybody, Dick Holdridge didn't just change the trajectory of my career. He changed the trajectory of my life because he realized, made me realize that my that my problem, I was self-limiting. The person that was limiting my performance and my impact on others was me. Nobody but me. That regardless of what the organization chart, who my manager was, the my real manager was me. And uh, so it was through a number of situations. There was a lot of situations in my life, not, not exactly like that, that happened where I just realized I disappointed somebody. I didn't do what I said I was going to do. I was absolutely sure I was right, only to find out I was wrong because I was arrogant. And it's through those failures uh, that I really kind of hit developed a philosophy of, uh, you know, just just pay attention to who's around you, give due respect and listen, uh, have genuine humility. That humility is more important than visibility. I don't care. You know, I've carried the title of president, managing director, or CEO multiple times. That doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. Uh, it, it, what matters is, are you serving your people? Are you serving your company? Are you making people better than they'd be if you weren't there? And just, hmm. just uh, I learned most of those things through failures, if you don't know the truth. So I know a lot of people view leadership as, and myself included, and I think that one of my, one of the things that I have to continue to learn is that sometimes as a leader, you have to be able to stretch somebody, give them a good kick in the pants, but it's for their own good. Uh, how how do you do that? Because that's an art, Toby, right? These three guys you mentioned that, that were tough on you, but changed your life. They But they did it skillfully. How, how do you do that? How can you give somebody a little bit of a, a stiff kick in the britches, but do it in a way that won't, that will grow them, that will stretch them, that will make them better. Well, and, and you don't know this, and you're asking really good questions. There's a whole chapter in the book to that, to that, how you do it. But let me, it starts with this. The test of a true executive or a true leader is not that everybody around you likes you every day, you know, uh, but it is that they trust and you behave in a way that they trust and respect you every day. And let me explain that. If you want people to like you every day, you're going to compromise what you ought to say, what you ought to do, and the actions you ought to take, because if you do what you ought to do, they're not going to like you that day. And so what I learned from Hunter Park, Frank Bellavy, and Dick Holdridge, when I worked with them or for them, about half the time I wanted to choke them. I mean, I didn't like them. Let me tell you something. 30 years later, I don't like them. I love them. All right? you got to sacrifice the need to be liked today to get people to do what they won't make themselves do, what they have the ability to do. And 30 years from now, they'll love you. 
And so I say that, Jonathan, real simple. You got to know when to push people and you got to know when to praise them. You got to know when to hug them and you got to know when to hit them. And you have to get out of your head that you have to soften it. The reality. Your job's not to get them to like you. Your job is to get them to close the gap between potential and performance. Hmm. And most people are self-limiting. And so they, it may be 10 years or 20 years or 30 years before they, and, but they will eventually, if you can get them to do what they won't get themselves to do, but what they can, they, they're never going to forget that. And I get so many things today with people that when I, I worked with them, maybe they work. I don't hardly ever say people work for me. It's just not, I would just say we work together. I teach them something say, I don't know if that'll work or not. I get so many emails and things today from people that are in leadership positions now say, I got one yesterday. Will you send me the decision-making thing using the six C's? Where they're in that situation, they realize, wow, I need some concrete way for me to make decisions. That's my framework for decisions. And I need to be able to explain to my subordinates or my peers why I'm doing it this way. And so when they get in that those situations where the pressure's on, uh, when you're being pressure tested, if you don't have some tried and true approaches, and, and for me, it's just be be diplomatic, but be direct. Be diplomatic. Hunter Park taught me that. He said, you got to know how to step on people's toes without taking the shine off their shoes. And, <laughs> and that's a great one. But you yeah. got to step on their toes sometimes. If you yeah. tolerate underperformance or failure, that's what you're going to get. It's the same way with being a parent. If your children know when you tell them to go to bed that you really only mean it the third time, that, that they're not going to go to bed the first two times. And so one of the mantras that's in the book is this, you get what you tolerate. It's that yeah. simple. Yeah. And so if you give people too much leeway, too much rope, uh, they're not going to perform. And so I have a little saying that good leaders create an environment that's the ideal balance of empowerment and accountability. Empowerment yeah. with no accountability is chaos or anarchy. I, you give, I can make all decisions I want, but you're not being held accountable to results. Yeah. But accountability with no true authority or empowerment is paralysis. If you tell somebody you're in charge of this, but every time they make a little mistake or they don't do it the way you want to, you slap them out the head or shoulder. Oh, that's wrong. You're wrong. But after a while, they're just going to gonna be completely demoralized and demotivated. Mm. You've got to give people rope, but you got to give them clear objectives and you got to give them clear accountability. It's that ideal balance. And when they don't, as uncomfortable as it is, you got to deal with it. Danny Meyer, I believe he owns uh, Union Square Hospitality Group in New York. They own Shake Shack and they own a bunch of really nice restaurants. He's got an article that everybody ought to read. And it's called the Salt Shaker Theory of Management. And it's about using constant, gentle pressure. Don't mm. give in. If you don't hold people accountable, what you've told them you'll hold accountable to, they'll, they'll, they'll continue to slide. Constant, mm. gentle pressure. That's yeah. how you do it. I'm not mean. I'm not tough. But I'm... I'm going to keep going that you're going, we're going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. I don't holler. I don't jump up and down, but if you don't get it, you're going to find yourself not employed at cargo. And because we're going to do it this way. And it's not my way. I say, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're right or I'm right. Let's just get it right. Hmm. All right. And what's right is what's effective. The customers vote with checks and how big they are and how often they send them. And uh, I may love it, but if if the buying customer doesn't like it, well, you got to adjust. It's not about me, you know. Uh, so you just got to be direct with people, and you got to hold people accountable to the to the. As John Wooden said, the greatest college basketball coach of all time, everybody's standard 
is their personal best. You got to hold people to their personal best. So let me ask you this, because as a leader, you don't have anybody giving you rope applying pressure. How do you keep that accountability for the man in the mirror? Oh, wow. That's a great, that's a great point. Uh, everybody's got a boss though, Jonathan. I mean, I've got board and stock, you know, owners and stuff. And so everybody's got a boss, but I, you've heard me said this before. When you're, ch- think about this, when you're a child, you won't do anything you're supposed to do unless your parents make you. Won't brush your teeth, won't be potty trained, won't go to bed on time, won't eat your vegetables. So it takes extrinsic motivation for a child to do anything that's good for they're supposed to do. That's, that's the definition of immaturity. Yeah. So the definition of maturity is I only need intrinsic motivation to do what I need to do. And there's a group in town, I can't remember their name, but they're really good. It says the number one trait of successful people is they can be self-managed. And I think over time, maybe this just comes about with age and experience, is that you develop a system, for me, a system, and everybody knows I use this, it's laying around here somewhere, I don't know where it is, it might be in my, oh, it's right here. This system of this, you know, I never have more than 11 to-dos in a day, and I get up every morning, and I, I plan way ahead. I've got stuff marked way out in the future in this thing. Mm. But only when I get up this morning, I ask myself two questions, Jonathan. Number one, what are the three things that are in that list that I absolutely, without fail, must complete today that whether anybody ever knows about it or not, are going to make the biggest difference in the operational and financial performance of that company? Hmm. of this company. And I highlight that. And it can be my department. It can be my personal job. You can ask that on different levels, depending on what your role is. But for me, I'm the, I'm the chief executive at a company. I highlight those three things in yellow, not work on, got to get them done. Got to complete it. The next question I ask is what is the one thing that I absolutely without faith? And I put most of my personal things on Friday. You know, I leave Friday for overflow things that don't get done on my to-do list Monday through Thursday and for personal things fixing stuff around the house and doing what, you know, Susan needs me to do or one of my kids or grandkids. But on Friday, the question is, I've still got some work. I have overflow things. I'll highlight those. But what's the one thing that I absolutely, without fail, must do today that whether anybody ever knows or not, going to make the biggest difference in my faith, my family, and my friends. Highlight that one thing in the other. Make sure you do it. It may be take flowers home to your wife. It may be, this is pretty funny, Susan, She's been using my profile on YouTube TV and she clicked her profile and you have to load the app. So today when I get home, I got to make sure that I load YouTube TV as one of her apps on her profile. That's a, <laughs> that's a little tiny thing. But those are the things that matter. And if you don't have a system for prioritizing what you're doing, you're going to be all People are going to drag you all over the map. You don't plan your day. Somebody else will plan it for you. So the, one of the things I heard somebody tell me one time, there's no such thing as time management. We've all got 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. It's about priority management. What's important? Mm-hmm. What's truly important? And our theme one quarter last year was what's important right now, move fast, get it done. All right. And people say, and you mean you only have three important things a day? And I said, yeah, that's it. And I said, let me explain this to you. We got 70 employees in our company. If all, everybody in our company followed that principle, use whatever system you want. You don't have to use my system. But you identified the three most important things that you can do to impact the financial operational performance of my company. How many other companies of our size do you think would be planning and executing the 210 most important things they could do? If we did that 
faithfully and rigorously over a period of time, you're going to look in the rearview mirror and your competition is going to look like a speck because mm. that kind of focus and commitment and discipline is rare these days. It's not common. And that's, that's how you get somewhere. So it, it's a, the things that you need to do today are almost countercultural in today's society. You know, a culture of discipline, a culture of service, a culture of putting others first, all those things, you know, uh, I mean, but you do those things and it, then it just begins to leach out to your customers and your employees in the community. And so our purpose statement for cargo is we make work and life better for our employees, our customers and our community. And we have to live up to that. But if you don't plan how you're going to do it, it'll never happen. How do you take someone or how does how does a person let's let's use myself as an example. How does Jonathan Peoples go from needing that extrin, extrinsic motivation to. Well, I think first of all, you need to be around people that will hold you accountable. OK, you know, we all want to be around people that pat us on the back, tell us how good we are. I've never gotten anywhere in my life but being part of the Mutual Admiration Society. You know, everybody just sitting around circle patting everybody on the back, telling, man, you're good, you're great. And that, and again, some of that today happens maybe more than, than I'll, you know, we got all kinds of stuff, awards and stuff, and I got it. But but in the day, the people that are tough on you in the end are going to be the people you truly appreciate. So it starts with having, <laughs> having some relationships of people that will tell you what you don't want to hear, Jonathan. Uh, I have so many young people, younger, you know, that come to me, they're in their first or second job. They don't like it. They know they're supposed to do something different. And I just sent this to the Chamber of Commerce last Wednesday, in fact, the 15th. And so I developed a career development toolkit. And that career development toolkit is 18 questions to get at these three things. Number one, what I genuinely love to do, not just work things. Hey, I like to travel. You know, I like to eat good food, drink good wine. I like to teach. I like to fish, I like to water ski. Uh, you know, I like Excel. I must be weird, but I do. I like, you know, all the things you like, work, non-work. Then number two, then the same question is, what am I genuinely good at? Because today, a lot of us have been told by our parents and our peers, oh, you're good at everything. We think we're good at everything. And our self-awareness is really bad. And one of the worst traits in the world is for you to believe and think this way about yourself. And the world sees you totally different. They think you're a fool and you think you're great. It's like someone who tells you they're a good dancer. And then they get out on the dance floor and you need about three good stiff drinks to even watch them, you know, (laughs) and, uh, yeah. And so part of that process, in fact, what you get, one of the instructions is you have to go to somebody that maybe you're not even fond of. Maybe they've been tough on you in the past. Maybe you're the harshest critic and they tell you what you're not good at. All yeah. right. They tell you what you're not good at and they tell you the things they think you're good at. And then the last thing is, you know, what is it that's in demand in the market today? And it's got emerging demand. These are these are disciplines and skills and roles that are accelerating in terms of their importance and demand in the commercial environment we live in. And when you answer those 18 questions, I said, here's the thing we're going to arrive at. If I can find a job, you know, you love it, you're good at it, and people write you, give you a lot of money to do it. Dude, that's the ideal job. Why else would you want to do anything else? But a lot of us today don't really have uh, an accurate perspective of the things we're not good at and the things we are good at. And we need somebody around us that the, earlier in our career we do this, the better that we really begin to understand what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, and rather than trying and let's focus on our strengths, the things that really can be developed. There's an old saying, find out where you have momentum and build on it. 
let's build on the assets and the resources and the capabilities that are there. And let's stay away. Doesn't mean we don't develop our weaknesses and, and get them better. But let's don't know, go try to be something we're not. Let's leave that to other experts and other specialists if that's their skill and that's what they're good at. And guess what? That makes a much more integrated world. We were all doing what we're best at and we all appreciate each other's gifts because we realize we don't we don't we haven't got all the answers and we haven't got everything we need to solve all the problems. That's an interesting take because I know a lot of people take the approach of let me focus on my weaknesses and try to make those strengths instead of let me try to let me focus on my strengths and make those better. And well, I like that you talked about those three things, Toby. That reminds me of Jim Collins hedgehog concept, although I like the way you put it better. Um, but why, why do people, why is it important to focus on your strengths, not your weaknesses? Well, that's, that's a great, you know, I, I didn't come up with that. Marcus Buckingham wrote a book years ago called First Break All the Rules. And he said, listen, you can transfer skills, you can teach knowledge, but you can't do anything about talent. Talent's something that's just in you. I mean, yeah. one of us can have a natural, I've been a salesperson my whole life. You know, we got an accountant here. I love him. You know, he's not a salesperson. He, we can both go through the same sales training. I'm still going to be a better sales salesperson than he is, and he's going to be a better accountant than I am. All right? right? Because he's got natural talent to, in terms of organization, how he thinks about things. I got natural talent in terms of connecting with people and how I'm going to, you know, somebody, I heard somebody, John Moore, share with me today. He said, you know, he said, the best way I heard when I was at Coca-Cola, I learned this. He said, you market you, you market the hole, but you're selling the drill bit. Mm-hmm. Right, so your ability to help people see the benefit, the end result of things like that. So we're better off, uh, you know, as Marcus Buckingham said, he said, look, quit trying to put into people what's something that's not there, but figure out what God's already put in them and pull it out. Mm-hmm. And that just made perfect sense to me. You know, it doesn't mean you ignore your weaknesses. You don't try to get better. But it's like playing in, it's like playing in a away game versus a home game. Mm. You, if you come play in my ball field and you're trying to copy me, here's what you don't know. I know where all the sprinkler heads are. You might trip over. I, mm-hmm. I, I know where all the gopher holes are in the outfield. And I know that we twisted the foul line two inches down the right field foul line. And I'm going to know how to hit a fair ball when yours is going foul. <laughs> and when you start playing and take your weaknesses and try to play in other people's ballpark and be something you're not, you're going to get beat. Hmm. And uh, we all want to win, but we want to win in the right way. Uh, so just, you know, just be true to who you are. And, and over time, your skills develop and change, and maybe they, they get a little different. But, you know, just just don't go try to – I have a saying, the distance between informed and ignorant is shorter than you think. Don't go too far. All right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It, you, yeah. I'm an expert here, so that makes me an expert over here. Uh-uh. Yeah, I'm telling you that you'll cross that line without knowing and you're going to look really stupid. And it can even be in something very similar. You know, you know, I had a background, I studied psychology in college and we would talk about Freud was an expert in one certain thing, but when he gave his opinion in other things in psychology, people don't pay attention to what he says because yeah, he was an expert at that one thing, not everything else. Well, it, it, arrogance makes us, we, we're successful and we think, Oh, I can just parlay that success and I'm going to be successful and everything. And I've seen that, in Greenville, especially where people that hit a home run with an entrepreneurial venture and then they go venture off into something and it doesn't work out. And a lot of that's just ego and just, you know, lightning, lightning doesn't strike twice. I mean, it's, you, you got to be careful again, humility uh, and understanding it takes those around us to achieve what we're trying to achieve. I think all of that has to come into play. Well, Toby, here we are. We're, we're coming up upon uh, our end here, man. I want to be respectful of your time. 
we need to do a part two because holy cow, we haven't even we've scratched the surface and I haven't even gotten to ask one or two of the questions I really wanted to ask. But let's do this before we jump off. Tell me about cargo. Well, you know, cargo is a unique ad agency. People probably laugh. They think I'm running an ad agency. I spent most of my life in technology, but I won't get into the whole story of how I ended up here. I've knew these guys for 16 years. But really why I came here was the primary industries that cargo serves, four industries primarily, transportation and equipment, especially commercial transportation, both off-road and on-road vehicles, technology, financial services, and industrial. Except I knew a little bit about financial services, not a lot, but the rest of the industries, I spent my career on the industry side. I was with IBM and multiple software companies. I sold helped design and sold manufacturing software for aircraft and ship and subships and submarines and cars. And so I knew about capital equipment manufacturing and distribution and helped put a lot of systems in distribution. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in Michigan for a number of years, putting the first uh, kind of lean materials management uh, plant control systems and a lot of the tier one automotive parts suppliers up there. So Cargo is a unique agency in that we're not only proficient at marketing, we got really good animators and artists and copywriters and video, you know, film production people, but we've also got industry experts because the most frustrating thing for a, a business leader or a C-level executive, COO or CEO or CXO is when, you know, somebody walks in an office and they don't understand their business. And we try to make sure that, you know, before we talk about how we're going to market your solutions and how we're going to market your product, uh, we understand your business. We understand your markets, who you're trying to sell to, uh, the mindset of your your potential audiences, your customers, why they buy, what prompts them to buy, when times are tight, what do they prioritize in terms of how they're going to spend their money, what makes them stick with you, long, what makes you sticky, why do they stay with a supplier for a longer period of time. And so I think, I don't like the word consultant, but I'll use it. I think we're consultants that help start it. We, uh, most marketing companies start, all right, here's our, here's our catalog of products and services. Y'all go promote them to our market, go sell them. And we say, look, we want to be at the table. We want to be a fully adopted external member of your internal strategic planning team because we want to start where the market's going so we can work with your research and development department and your product managers. What kind of products and services are gonna be in vogue three years from now? How do we get ahead of the curve? How do we create a competitive edge for you and do strategic marketing, not just product marketing? So just a very different approach to how we work. Yeah, so like Wayne Gretzky said, skate where the puck is going, right? Yeah, that's right, skate where the puck's going. That's what he said, that's exactly right. So uh, what, what are there certain size clients or you mentioned a certain industry, is that correct? Yeah, well, there are. We, I mean, we, we, our tag, if you look at my website, is we call it B to SB. It's actually copyright business to small, but we connect big brands, hmm. big, you know, it can be Fortune 500. They don't have big or compelling brands. Like 10 years ago, Tesla wasn't a big brand, but it was a compelling brand. Today, it's a big brand. So it's right. not just big brands, the big neon signs out there on all the buildings in Los Angeles and New York and Chicago today. But who are the up and coming brands that are really growing market share at a, at, a, at a rapid pace? So we take big and compelling brands, help them identify, acquire, grow and retain the small and medium business customers they really want. Because 90 plus percent, 95 plus percent of businesses in the United States are small business, just a huge market. And big brands sell product. Now, they may sell through distribution, but we, I sell and we help big brands identify, acquire, 
grow and retain the small business customers they really want, whether that's end user customers or distributors or dealers that sell their product to the end user customer. And we do it because we make sure that we execute the research and we use secondary research as well to understand the audience, understand what motivates people to buy. It's not done anecdotally or an opinion. I always say, in God we trust, all others bring data. It's based on data. <laughs> uh, yeah. let's, let's outthink, outsmart, outanalyze who we're going up against. And our job is to give you competitive edge, and that's what we do. And they can find you guys at thecargoagency.com, correct? That's correct. That is correct. All right. Well, as we're wrapping up, Toby, you got three rapid fire questions for you. Number one, what's your favorite book? Uh, favorite books, probably still good to great, really. It sits right here on my desk. It's never, never left. It's just, I think it's the universal timeless objective principles for me to be a level five leader. So I'd say good to great. Uh, question number two, what do you do for fun? Uh, used to fish a lot. I don't fish as much anymore, but fish and travel and uh, you know, on the next podcast, I'll talk about kind of my wife's a medical miracle. She really is. Uh, but so our travel's a little limited these days. But yeah, I'd say fish and travel. And and this is going to sound crazy, but teach. Uh, just have a chance. You know, I, I like to speak and I like to teach because inspiration precedes perspiration. You want to inspire people to do more than they're doing today. Question number three, favorite travel location. Oh man, that's that's well in the United States, that's Austin, Texas. Uh, okay, just unbelievable. Now, I like Seattle and I like you know Scottsdale and Phoenix worldwide. You know, probably my I had an office in Paris for years, and people always say, Well, some people say, Well, Parisians are, are rude, they act like they have the greatest city in the world. I always said, There's a reason for that, they do. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, probably Paris and like Seoul, Korea was just a great place to work. I worked in you know, Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. And so there's a lot of great places, but I'd say, you know, my favorite place today is probably, even though it's really busy these days, still probably Austin. Anywhere you haven't been that you've on your bucket list? Uh, the Maldives, that's probably the only place the islands out, you know, I'd probably do that. I will say there's one other place nobody's ever heard of. There's a place my family's been going to since 1969. And if I say this and people start going, I'm going to be upset. But it's Steenhatchee, Florida. It's a remote fishing village on the west coast of Florida. It's changed a lot. But that's if when I want to escape and I'm going there on March the 16th, I'm going to take one of my grandchildren. He's 13 and we'll go fish for about four days. But that's probably my favorite place to go and just escape from the world. Thanks for listening to the Success in South Carolina podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and share it with a friend who needs to hear it. And as always, this is a friendly reminder that the left lane is for passing. So speed up or move over. Are you still listening? Check out the next episode. Thank you.